This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. As usual, we're broadcasting here from the campus in San Francisco on a warm summer day. Uh, the good news of the, the, the advantage that we have is a radio program, uh, which is focused on VCs and entrepreneurs and thought leaders in the Bay Area, is that we're right next door to Silicon Valley, which is about a, on a good day, good traffic day is about 35 minutes away. <laughs> I'm, your, I'm your host, Doug <laughs> on Collum. On a heroic traffic day, <laughs> right. yeah. I'm your host, Doug Collum, and I'm here along with my co-host, Irina Yen. Uh, we've got two great guests today. Our, our, for the first hour, we'll be speaking with Nicola Corzine, who's the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center, which is a nonprofit in downtown San Francisco that's dedicated to delivering a wide range of education and other support services to entrepreneurs. And just as, uh, just as Nicola walked in, um, it, it occurred to me that we actually interviewed her during one of the first sessions we had of, right. the biz- of business radio over three years yeah, ago. Yeah, when we launched. That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry we started that particular conversation. It's been that long I mean, <laughs> since you and I have been doing this. And then in the second hour, we've got Andrew Cates, who's the co-founder and VP of operations <coughs> of a unique company. It's called the Wine Raisin Company. Uh, an innovative startup that turns harvested wine grapes into superfood snacks full of good things that are nutritious and good for you. That's right. Um, Bay Area Ventures, for those of you just joining us, is all about the world of entrepreneurship, as Doug mentioned, uh, startups and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And our show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific. That's 7 p.m. Eastern and conveniently during your rush hour drive. So that 30-minute or plus drive that <laughs> folks are on right now uh, can enjoy Bay Area uh, Bay Area Ventures. And it does re-air again throughout the week. I mean, I used to think that having a 4 p.m. Uh, showtime was a uh, was a disadvantage, but given the chronic complaints about traffic, not right. just in the Bay Area but everywhere, I'm starting it's to true. think this is prime time for radio programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's jump right in. We're joined now by our first guest, Nicola Corzine, who's the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. So welcome, Nicola. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, yes, again. Great to see you. That's right. <laughs> Can't wait to hear what's going on. Yeah, so why don't we start off. What What is the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center? Just a short caption summary, and then we can go back through it in, de- in detail. Yeah, absolutely. So the center uh, is a nonprofit, as, as you identified, that delivers really world-class education and resources to inclusive entrepreneurs globally. Uh, our mission is really to ensure that they have access to just-in-time support for building the legacy companies that they're all excited about doing day in and day out. And it's, it's I mean, right off, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to parse through. I'm going <laughs> to jump away from the from the script, but um, so it's not confined to San Francisco. No, no, not at all. In in our last three years, we've now had over thirteen thousand founders that we've supported from more than sixty eight countries. Whoa! Wow, that's okay, amazing. we're going to we'll jump. Dig, we're going to dig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we started this conversation. Here we go. So, um, Nicola, what's your background? I I mean, I know a little bit about it, but. Um, for the people, for benefit of the people who are listening, like what brought you to this point in your career? A series of interesting twists and turns as often happens in the Valley, I think. Um, but I uh, am first and foremost, I think of myself as a builder. So I'm an entrepreneur myself. I've um, sort of started three companies. Uh, one of those was just a fine lifestyle company started in college. And uh, one was ultimately, uh, I was brought in as first business person and acquired by Microsoft. And then one raised way too much money and blew up in glorious fashion. That one taught me way more than the first two did combined. Yeah as often yeah. goes. Uh, and then uh, did a very short stint in investment banking before moving over into venture myself um, and ultimately spent 11 years co-leading Band of Angels with Hans Severins and Ian Sobieski. And for those that don't know, Band of Angels is the oldest angel investment group. So a you know, I was just going to say, yeah, the Band right. of Angels is renowned in the Valley. And you were, what what role did you play there? Uh, so I was a deal manager. So I looked at over 7,500 companies in the 11 years, uh, ended up making about 120 unique investments during that time period. Uh, and did two venture funds. So kind of a chief, I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but kind of a chief of staff role, making yeah. sure that the trains ran on time and and um, choreographing 
deal flow in front of the investors and, and the screening the deal flow also. screening yeah. the deals and and being a part of the investment committees along the way too right? so that was for all intents and purposes you were a vc for many years many through years. the band of angels that's right and is, is one of those of, ended up getting ultimately uh, a, a joint venture with nasdaq and that was my foray into oh, finding okay. out what nasdaq were building and got incredibly excited with this idea of, of building a startup of all startups in many ways and uh, and found myself turning once again to wanting to be part of that founding team so so let's talk about that a little bit, which yes. is the segue from Band of Angels, which still exists. Very much so. Very, yeah. very active. Very the segue active. from there into a NASDAQ-supported uh, nonprofit organization. Yeah, yeah. What was that about? You know, I, so I, I was going to kind of tell a little bit of the tale of working beside some of the most interesting mentors that I could ever have hoped for during my time of being a band really saw for me the gap that existed within the market for entrepreneurs that just didn't have access to that kind of support system. We, we think about it all the time, how lucky we are here in the Valley of having someone that's willing to sit down over a cup of coffee and tell you what they learned along the way of building a company that they were involved with and wanting to help you out. But imagine being able to do that at scale for entrepreneurs who simply were one or two steps removed. And I saw within the power of the name NASDAQ and all that they had built for themselves as being a, a leader in innovation, the chance to do that for entrepreneurs on a global scale. And there's only a few times, I think, in life that you're given or afforded that kind of opportunity. And certainly with the startup capital already committed from the foundation side to really give us a chance to go do just that. Uh, and uh, as I say, sort of coming from uh, band's legacy of really leaning into supporting entrepreneurs, being that value-added investor, I saw the chance to be able to do that for entrepreneurs, absent the capital part, but still very much playing that value-added role, um, realizing that you know the journey of an entrepreneur, as we say all the time, Delgarina, you know this to be the case, is it's a lonely journey. In some ways, it becomes harder the more successful you get. Uh, and so being able to be there focused on the founder-first mentality uh, for the long run, um, based on, on sort of our uh, process as being a nonprofit was really unique uh, and something that just drew me in all the time. I, I know how much I needed that support at varying times in my career as an mm -hmm. entrepreneur, how much it allowed me to learn from others who were willing to roll up the sleeves and play that support system. And to be able to turn around and do that for others on a scalable level was just uh, an incredible opportunity. So this entrepreneurial center, I mean, you mentioned that it's had amazing reach, 13,000 um, supported ventures mm -hmm. across 68 countries. That, so that is an amazing That's astounding. Yeah. So, how do, so how does it work? Because it's a not-for-profit. Yeah. So if I'm an entrepreneur, I have an idea. I mean, it could range from I'm, am I kicking tires, I am just yeah. have a concept, all the way to folks that already have some kind of significant traction. How does that work? Do right. they apply for the resources? Right. Right. Great questions. So um, a, a few things that I will sort of lean into that's a little bit different of our model, uh, to your point, than, than others. So we are a full life cycle of entrepreneurial development. Mm -hmm. So we work with early, mid, and late-stage founders. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can come into the center and get value to any of the classes that we're offering almost on a self-service like model if we're mm -hmm. going to go into entrepreneurial speak um, choose your own journey so are you trying to grow to be a scalable venture-backed business if so, there are classes and offerings that you're more suited for. Are you trying to build a, a fine, a standalone, smaller business? Absolutely. We've got programs that are more geared you towards you. You take any and all? All industries, all stages of entrepreneurs. Everything is pro bono. We take no equity and we charge for nothing. Mm -hmm. It's based entirely on this uh, mechanism that I think Silicon Valley does so beautifully and so especially a pay-it-forward approach. Mm -hmm. So we expect our entrepreneurs to be able to turn around and really support other entrepreneurs in their economies. Um, one of the reasons that we do that is, honestly, we have uh, we are in top performance quartile for supporting an inclusive engagement of entrepreneurs. Almost half, 49% of our founders are female. So of those 13,000, almost half of them are women-based founders. And 62% are minority entrepreneurs. Um, that is outstanding. And we need those people to become great beacons of entrepreneurship and showcase their talents to a wider audience. And so we hold them accountable to supporting other entrepreneurs with the information they receive from us. That's great. So, so if, I'm a, if I'm an entrepreneur, I come in, so is it I can take any classes that I want and then I get mentorship how does that's that work? right that's mm -hmm. right so we have kind of the three-legged stool that I think uh, everyone really leans into and, and and loves from a curriculum approach the first is while we do like giving an informational engagement we also look for action-based learning or more immersive learning right? right we want you to be able to apply the theoretical insights that you're getting today mm -hmm. and then sort of being able to take 
path to action for realizing the impact. Our KPIs that we hold ourselves accountable to are how many business challenges are where we helping our entrepreneurs resolve. If we're not doing that very well, then we shouldn't be doing what we do. Yeah. Uh, so we're pulsing our community all the time for the quintessential question, what keeps you up at night? We're building a just-in-time curriculum around that. So the team back inside is looking at sort of the next 90 days of program offerings based on what the community needs us to build. And then we find mentors that can support around those yeah. programs. So that's the, that's the learning leg of the stool. Yeah. Keep going. So the learning uh, uh, basically follows that suit. Then there's a whole application that really lives within a peer-to-peer dynamic. I can't tell you, and again, I'm, I'm sure you know this all too well, sitting across the table from someone who is going through something very similar yeah. to what you're experiencing, but comes from a slightly different background. And, and here's the magic of why we like being industry agnostic or having different industries in the room. It tends to lower the defenses and allow for faster learning that can apply. So when you're not just only sitting in SaaS-based, high-tech uh, software-as-a-service-based businesses, all of a sudden you can start listening and hearing how people are tackling access to capital in a very different approach right. and really getting into the crux of sort of problem-solving in the ways that entrepreneurs want to do, but sometimes are limited just by their own sort of biases or applications that they've had up until that point in time. So the peer-based learning is really, really critical. Ultimately, we find in moving our entrepreneurs from that level of stick right. um, that they're faced with day in and day out. And then the third is really kind of staying with them on a transformational level mm -hmm. through that challenge. So a lot of the times you can be an in-the-moment sticking problem, uh, but six months later you may find that mm -hmm. aha moment right. that happened from that class that you took way back when. And so being able to have that legacy, long-tail approach to entrepreneurial development from a founder-first mentality really helps there. So, Nicola, let me jump back because <clears throat> it occurs to me that people listening in uh, probably there are some people out there that don't know what NASDAQ is. And I do want to ask the question, what is – I don't understand the tie between NASDAQ and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center because they're apples and oranges. I mean, they are fundamentally different, right? They are different but very much come from that same mentality of the importance of entrepreneurship. So um, we were born out of a very generous gift that was made from the NASDAQ Education Foundation. Now, the foundation has a long tenured history in everything from financial literacy to educational advancement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times um, the foundation was giving a strong gifts and still do of grant levels to business plan competitions, honestly, across campuses in America. Um, one of the reasons that they wanted to do more and had made a commitment many, many years ago to do just this, to est help establish a standalone nonprofit focused on entrepreneurial excellence, was really the idea that they have this huge network of powerful leaders, people like John Chambers, Chair right. Cisco, uh, Kirsten Toby of Revolution Foods, who raise a hand and say, you know, we know what it was like to go through the process of being an entrepreneur and, and to be one of those that, that stood the test of time and can come out on the other side and pay it forward and give back to entrepreneurship. And so they wanted to lean into more of that value add investment base that they knew they could do so. Um, and so the foundation gave us this grant to get going. We have an annual sponsorship that comes from NASDAQ. You know, NASDAQ itself uh, is very much the entrepreneurial base. Well, the, everybody knows of them probably from the public uh, stock market uh, side I of the mean, house. I mean, I was just going to say that. I mean, you, you know this from my lawyering days. When yeah. I hear NASDAQ, I always uh, think this, the is, this is the, <laughs> the electronic platform right. yeah. for trading companies sure. that do IPOs or follow on public offerings. Yeah. Yep. And so, in effect, what I read into this is that NASDAQ is cre it's going, they're going down market, if you will. They're basically creating an ecosystem which ultimately is, provides continuity from early seed stage right on up through mm -hmm. a potential exit. Is that? That's, that's definitely a, a fair part to it. I mean, I think, or is that too sharp edge? Uh, well, I, as with everything, I think there's 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 a lot that is encompassing in the in the story of who Nasdaq is and and how they've come to be. I mean, interestingly enough, almost two thirds of their revenue are actually from the technology side of the house. Um, they have in respect of publicly traded mm, companies. In respect of yeah. that, uh, you know, <coughs> they uh, would definitely lean into seeing themselves as a technology leader. That is critical to figuring out everything from AI and VR and, yeah. and sort of the next genesis right. of of technology technology implications to their business, um, but they also power exchanges worldwide. So whereas people know of them, obviously, from the U.S. basis, right. they're also in 80-plus markets now globally supporting mm -hmm. all of those exchanges as a technology leader. Um, NASDAQ private market is the secondary offerings. This is where a lot right. of the tech right. companies right. are able to receive liquidity prior boomed. to going, yeah. right. oh, huge, huge, yeah. huge business. Um, and, and they power all of that exchange as well. So again, from um, 
from a technology understanding, from the suite of wanting to be there to support entrepreneurs at early, mid, and late stages, it is in the DNA of who NASDAQ sees themselves first and foremost as being sort of the first electronic stock market. They, they were entrepreneurial-based themselves looking for technology to solve a pain point that they saw with the old pink sheets. Yeah. Uh, and now evolving into this tremendous leadership position of, of technology through the core of uh, all of the life cycle of entrepreneurial development. I mean, given the scope of all the services that you have, like, is there a target or an optimal, like if you were to say, this is the typical or optimal type of uh, venture or group of people who would benefit the most from the services, if it, you know, whether it's focused on more in tech or not, or it doesn't matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I think industry-wide, it's, it's really interesting. You would think that the specifics of needs would change. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm going to go back to saying from, you know, in our first couple of years, we've done about 265 original programs focused on entrepreneurial advancement. Uh, educational type Educational types. programs. Yeah, uh-huh. And um, we're very data-driven. I think it's sort of the data junkies inside of us right. that are always trying to geek into, like, what are the uh, thematic approaches that we're seeing from similarities of entrepreneurial bases? Mm-hmm. And time and time again, we see and we hear the needs are coming in at a tactical level. So right, right. let me give you an example. Um, I'm challenged in trying to identify the right investors for my business, or I don't have access to this VC, or I need to work on my pitch deck. But most of the time, it's a it's a um, uncomfortableness that they're feeling internally of, do I really understand my shareholder value? Mm-hmm. And so we're really working on things like confidence. We're really working on things like identifying how to stand them up as a leader in their field. Uh, and that doesn't change whether you're an ag tech company, a software company, or a consumer-based business. You need to connect with your shareholder in the way that your shareholder is trying to look for the reason as to why to do business with you in the first place. Yeah. And understanding their mentality, whether investor-based or buyer-based, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's the same mechanics that are coming around. Yeah. Um, and so we see more similarities and differences as far as the state of development, um, I certainly feel that our robust curriculum is better suited for those that are um, looking for that high-scale type of support, Uh, in part, again, just from our legacy and our mentor base and where we come from. Um, But we definitely can scale in in a variety of ways so that even the non-venture-backed have the optionality. We like to look at our entrepreneurial base as saying, do we give you greater options at the end of the day so that you're not feeling that you're pigeonholed into taking only one course um, because that's just not a good place. If there are like non-tech listeners here who doesn't nece- who don't necessarily have a SaaS business or like an ad tech driven business who has say a brick and mortar I don't know a consumer beauty business, however that person is thinking about expanding a product yeah. line <coughs> online, is, yeah. is it suited for that sort of entrepreneur? Most definitely, we have uh, a program that is much beloved called the Milestone Makers Program. This uh, came about through the real genesis of realizing that for a lot of entrepreneurs, there's uncertainty as to how to know to take their business from where they are today and in a period of a quarter, uh, get real predictable around what they're going to be able to accomplish and hold themselves from an accountability perspective, both internally and externally right. to stakeholders. Uh, and inside of Milestone Makers, we have a lot of consumer-based businesses. We have a current cohort that's about to graduate in mid-August. Three of those are consumer-based businesses, two of which are looking to expand their product oh. lines. So we have many of those types of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, that we engage with because again at the end of the day they're looking to for options around how to grow and, right. and impact their own businesses absent venture financing at the end of the day we've had a few in the past um, interestingly enough one that ended up getting picked up by REI mm-hmm. uh, that is now scaled across America That's in cool. REI businesses so I think brick and mortar absolutely there's a lot of business uh, support and engagement that we can give to them in addition to the venture side of that so a couple qu- I mean all these things raise new questions but um, first <laughs> of all do you take companies in in cohorts you use that word yeah only milestone makers is a 12-week engagement immersive learning we get about 150 applicants uh, to 12 spots on average sometimes we'll uh, go up to 15 but we've never gone beyond that and uh, interestingly enough it's an international based program so i can't tell you the fascinated learnings that you can get when you get international entrepreneurs working beside one another because their perspectives are radically different um but uh in in terms of the founder experience again to go back to sort of that self-service model 
level, you raise a business challenge, chances are you're going to be in a class with other entrepreneurs that right. have taken, some have taken classes with us before, some are just taking that class because that's the only issue that they're stuck with. Um, so many of the times you start building up kind of a cohort experience over time as you get in. But it's um, just by virtue of rubbing virtue. shoulders exactly. with people with exactly. who come in yeah. about exactly. the same time. We've had a few of our favorite stories where a founder has found another co-founder as a result yeah. of sort of alignment on uh, on interesting um, uh, discussions that have come up post-class. I was going to ask the question, <laughs> is there is there a typical profile of a company that comes in? I was going to ask the question, which I think maybe you've answered, but... Do most of the companies come in have some degree of funding already, or it's it's all over the map? It is all over the map. Of the 13,000 base, I mean, our, our profile is 75% are what we consider early stage. And early stage identified by less than 500K in, in either self-funding, revenue, or outside capital. But s- some degree of but funding some degree or of money that tangible allows them to traction. Be fully in business of being an entrepreneur day in and day out. Um, We have about 15% that we would consider in that mid-stage. So they're beyond that level. They've taken in, you know, probably a Series A type of round of financing. uh, They've got at least a few employees that are, you know, depending on them for Mm -hmm. their livelihood at the end of the day uh, and are on a track towards really growing and scaling up the business. And then we've got 10% that are really targeted towards that late-stage acquisition IPO moment and in the near horizon, T-minus 18 to 24 months out. And what does that last ten percent come come into the center for? Uh, you know, again, because these are now exper- the, yeah. companies with substantial traction. They've Revenue, got, they got a great all. trajectory. I, what What are they looking if, for from you guys? We, if only we 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 knew it all at that at yeah. that end time. I mean, I I, I think uh, a couple of things uh, that we hear time and again from them. One is uh, an elevated stage where they can really be their own uh, thought leader and share back. Uh, and connect back to entrepreneurship in a way that they really need to. A lot mm-hmm. of the times they feel that they're additive rather than really being uh, innovative in that moment. Um, also, they are getting that coursework, honestly, from the name NASDAQ and from others that can then come in and say, as you get ready to really try to steer towards a very successful IPO experience, here's what it takes. I mean, we have now a huge Rolodex of companies oh, yeah. that have been yeah. there, Worldwide, done that, yeah. <laughs> and that can really lean in and say, you know, predictability, quarter over quarter pressures let's talk about what that really means let's talk about your testing period let's talk about how you start really moving towards great governance sooner rather than later let's talk about culture and what that means both outside to analysts and internally to your company during this transformational (laughs) period Um, and and, you know a lot of the times they're also considering internal tender offers as well and so what does that do for shaking out the tree potentially or losing talent during this moment Um, Um, if you're just joining us we're speaking with Nicola Corzine, the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Uh, and Nicola was just sharing with us the benefits to participants. I mean, that you really offer the nitty gritty to these um, entrepreneurs of building the business through each life stage, you know, early all the way to scale. So you mentioned like an application process. That was for the milestone makers. So for outside of that, I mean, how do people participate? Is it for each cohort? Is Maybe the cohort is for milestone makers. But if I want to take advantage as an entrepreneur to what it has to offer, do I apply or do I start dropping in and taking classes and informally a community is built around that experience? Yeah, great question. Uh, more to the latter than to the former. So physically, if you are close to the Bay Area, obviously we're open all the time. We, we love to see founders. Uh, we're usually hosting classes on a very, very regular basis. People come to the site or they can find us through any of the event brights and see what we have going on um, and see the language that we use around what is the problem that we're trying to solve for in the class and the structure that's mm-hmm. being done. Uh, simply applying to the program is a very straightforward process, just a handful of questions that we're going to ask you. And including um, inviting you to identify a couple of references that you can give us of people that you've already convinced that you're a great entrepreneur doing wonderful things in the world. Do you turn people away? Uh, We have on occasion. Mm-hmm. Just because they absolutely don't fit in any shape yeah. or form. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we really want it to be very intentional around mm-hmm. the fact that this is a free resource, not because it's of low value, mm-hmm. but because it's of great value to the right people that need to take advantage and have access to this kind of support. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, and, and so we want that intentionality to be built into everything that we give to people and that expectation, as I say, that they're going to turn around and support others once they leave the program. Right. Um, if they aren't physically able to get to the Bay Area, because as much as I wish everyone could be here sometimes it would be a little surprising tired surprising that yeah. not, surprising uh, not everybody, not everybody <laughs> could unfortunately be here so we are now making available all of our resources 
resources online as oh, well, uh, whether um, in the moment through Facebook Live. So if you can't hear John Chambers tell you mm -hmm. the secrets to his success and the lessons that he has learned along the way, then being able to turn into a live moment and watch and learn alongside of us or after the fact, downloading our podcast and listening mm -hmm. to us that way is also available as well. We have a lot of toolkits that we try to put online. Mm -hmm. um, so like our Milestone Makers, um, this program that I shared with you that gives a framework to entrepreneurs to know how to how to start moving towards a quarter over quarter predictability in major business inflections that matter to you as a founder first and foremost, and secondly, and as importantly to your shareholders. That's a whole framework that we've now moved online and people can download that toolkit and work through that process, those worksheets on their own. On their own. And if they get stuck, there's a helpline that they can reach out to us and, and we're happy to sort of tackle with them. Um, we also do uh, office hour sessions digitally mm -hmm. and in person as well. So again, oh. if they're not Amazing, physically yeah. able to get to us, we try to make available, thanks to our generosity of our sponsors and our underwriters, as much as possible, as many resources for all. So it sounds like your business model is global and maps in some symmetrical way to the uh, the business model of NASDAQ at the, you know, the, the parent organization. So talk about marketing. How do you guys get, I know I've, I've seen your center in downtown San Francisco. Mm. I mean, it's an amazing it's place. It's an amazing space. Yeah. How do you get, how do you reach out beyond the Bay Area? Um, I think as with uh, being our own entrepreneurs in many ways, uh, carefully. It, you, know, I, you know, I would say, <laughs> because I'm going to come to this, which is that this is, I mean, it was formed in what, 2014? Yeah, 15, yeah. So yeah. it truly is a startup company in startup itself. Startup, and yeah. you're the CEO, so we're going to come back and <laughs> drill you on that. But <laughs> to talk about the. Needs to. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, you have to, um, in the same way that entrepreneurs get um, really bold really early on with their, with their stance around what kind of go to market partners am I really looking for? What's Correct. my alignment yeah. from a market position? We too had to do that same exercise. The, the beauty to what we do is, is we really are very active additive to a lot of the other entrepreneurial organizations and ecosystems that are out there. We're very complimentary mm -hmm. and we're about the best deal that they're going to get. So yeah. everybody from the, from the investor side love it because we're non-dilutive and we're really there with that founder first mentality as a safe space uh, for founders to really to come together and work on the things that are causing them friction in their businesses to propel them forward for the benefit of GDP, for the benefit of economic development. Um, in the same way, uh, internationally, a lot of the talent base that we have here, people like Guy Kawasaki, people like John Chambers, Kirsten Tobias, it's hard for them to have access to those kind of right. teachers. And so for us to be able to share those resources on the international level on a very consistent basis becomes a huge value add from most of our partners. Um, we're in the business of really trying to advance uh, research and development around what makes entrepreneurial excellence possible with emerging ecosystems as much as the established ecosystem of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. In the Band of Angels days, I had a chance to be part of um, Startup America initiative. Wow. And, and that was very interesting in a lot of ways. Honestly, we came in with a, a guise of, we'll just take Silicon Valley and we'll replicate it in oh, different right. cities uh, across the US. And of course, as, as to be expected, we hit some hurdles with that, um, with that idea. But the rationale for why was very good. It was around identifying talent bases of tremendous innovators and trying to put the right resources that could really advance and propel them to another state. Mm -hmm. This concept still is true. So it's I've just got a recognition ask, of difference. I have to ask the question. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a soft pitch, which is, does NASDAQ contemplate another or entrepreneurial centers outside of the Bay Area? We this notion of yeah. replicating, taking of an infrastructure play and replicating it in other geographies? Yeah. We, we've had a lot, of, we have had and been fortunate to have many uh, conversations that have come inbound saying, how might we how create? About us? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's honestly a humbling conversation to have with those kinds of leaders because a lot of the times we look at them and we're like, we have as much to learn from you. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, I think, again, I love this place. I think of it as sort of just the most amazing ground from which I've been so very fortunate to have learned what I have in my career here. But the reality is, you know, there are other uh, regions that have hotbeds of innovators that are building phenomenal companies, absent perhaps a capital base, but very, very interesting to see mm -hmm. what they've been able to build as quickly as they have. What happens when you pull in some of these other ingredients to see how they might take off in the same way that Silicon Valley? has. I mean, I, I think we all agree that uh, talent isn't limited by geography. Talent right. is limited by education and resources. So when you solve for that paradigm, what might shift from uh, making the world, honestly, more accessible for all from an entrepreneurial engagement?
Yeah. Um, I've got a, let's see, we've got a, another two, couple, three minutes, but I want to ask you, uh, you have, on your website, you talk about partnerships. Yes. And you have a, a range of corporate logos down there. Yes. I mean, what's your strategy in terms of who you approach to team up with for purposes of expanding the reach of the center? Not yeah. just the reach, but also the support capability. Well, that's it. That's it. That's just such a great question because for us, all of our partners are, are truly uh, required for the entrepreneurial support as much as sort of their financial generosity to the mission of what we're in the business mm-hmm. of. Um, you know, being able to lean into leaders like Wilson Sonsini and KPMG, uh, Thomson Reuters, GE Ventures, people that have in so many ways not only supported entrepreneurs internally, but externally internally with great programming, with great resources, with great toolkits for entrepreneurs to do so much more. They all came from that same mentality of paying it forward. I mean, just to ask the frank question, is that a financial support structure or is it more strategic support? Financial and strategic in both instances. It's it's really required to be both. Um, Mm -hmm. And they are teaching classes and they are giving pro bono support in a lot of engagements to the entrepreneurs that are coming through. Yeah. Sounds great. So why don't we take a short break? I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with Irina Yend. Our guest this hour is Nicola Korzine, who's the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. We have a lot more to talk about. Please stay with us. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back, everyone. This is Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm your host, Doug Collum. I'm here with my co-host, Irina Yen. Our guest this hour is Nicola Korzin, who is the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center here in downtown San Francisco. And when we left off, we were talking about basically the, the profile and business model of the center and, and how it aspires to provide a wide range of support, educational, and other services to entrepreneurs in early stage and late stage and mid stage companies. So it covers a lot of waterfront. But I thought maybe what we should do is step back just a little bit to give people a sense. I mean, the the center itself has been around, Nicola, only three years. And the center itself is a startup company. Absolutely. I mean, for all intents and purposes. So maybe in a snapshot kind of way, you know, how many employees, you know, what kinds of uh, executive positions are on the management team? Um, and maybe you can give us some more numbers. You talked about overview in a dashboard, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you gave us thirteen. <laughs> you said thirteen thousand companies, but I mean, give us some data that will give people a sense of the size and activity levels yeah, of the, the center. Reach, yeah. yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so I have a mighty, mighty team of seven. Uh, that honestly is more like a mighty team of fifty. It feels like on yeah. these days, uh, and uh, you know, not surprisingly. There were some assumptions around what were going to be the core positions that we really needed to build and how we were going to be kind of a, an army that could go out and, and do all of these types of programming that we've talked about over the last half hour um, and have the sustainability from a financial wherewithal and uh, still good management. I mean, being a nonprofit, you know, you've got some pretty strong regulations that surround you around it from a reporting and, a, and an accountability perspective. And we're going to come to that, by the way, mm-hmm. as it relates to you. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. Um, so, so all of that, uh, felt a lot like originally that we were having to make some pretty big bets again, not dissimilar to, I guess, most entrepreneurs, yeah. you, know, you mm-hmm. have, you have a bucket of money. How are you going to spend it? How are you going to get the maximum return on your own investment Correct. or return on shareholders investment in, in the belief and in the mission of what we were trying to do. Uh, and so we were very careful, uh, to make sure that, uh, what we were building, uh, was really maximizing the financial infrastructure that had been given to the center first and foremost. So you, you guys called out the beautiful space that we have, and we are very fortunate. We have 13,000 square foot uh, in downtown uh, San Francisco on the uh, heart of Soma. Um, and we really wanted to build classes, and we really wanted to hear from our community where the classes that we were building meeting the needs of where they wanted us to be. So we were structured initially very much on the programming side of the house. Uh, and then over time, as we saw more and more impact there, started turning a little bit of time into, okay, now we've built programs, people are attending these programs, let's look at that next layering of support from a scalability perspective and make sure that we're being very judicious with the capital that we've been given uh, to draw there. So uh, to give you numbers on the uh, on the financial side of the house, you know, 74 cents 
of every dollar that we raise goes directly to programming, mm. which, you know, being a three-year-old nonprofit is not bad. I'd like us to get closer to that 82 cent kind of metric number. But for three years in, I'm pretty happy that 74 cents of every dollar goes to programming. As opposed to investment in overhead and so, infrastructure? So, yeah. Okay. So in nonprofit, you kind of have uh, programming, you have management, and then you have fundraising. Mm-hmm. And ideally, you want more money to be swinging to the pendulum of impact on programming right. sure. because that's what that's, your that's shareholders your are, yeah. are, are supporting and a little less on management and a little less on, on obviously the fundraising mm-hmm. side of the mm-hmm. house. So we were very intentional knowing that it would make uh, our shareholders happier at the end of the day to see more of their capital going there and ideally more of our fundraisers job easier when they're going out raising capital for the center to have that kind of metric mm-hmm. intentionally built. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been, you know, I, I would say an opportunity uh, for us to be able to educate people that we are a nonprofit first and foremost. Right. I mean, we're going to talk about lessons learned. One of the things um, that I appreciated tremendously was having the history, the legacy, the impact of NASDAQ supporting this. Everybody took my call. But when I also said, but we're a nonprofit and we're trying to raise money, that was kind of an eyebrow raised of like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that. How does that turn. work? How does that work? work? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it afforded me such how lucky am I that as a nonprofit we have that kind of history to really lean into to say, yeah, let me tell you about the work we're doing and why you want to join us in this and why you want to join people like NASDAQ and KPMG and Wilson Cincinnati and Lehigh University and all these other places that believe in this work as well. Um, but it certainly it wasn't necessarily an aha of, of course, you're a nonprofit right. and, of course, you're looking for, for money to be able to do the things that you're doing. Um, so let me, let me steer the conversation a little bit here. So. Um, NASDAQ is, uh, I call it the parent organization, and you're, a, in effect, the CEO of a startup company in yeah. San Francisco, and you've got a board of directors, and, and you report upward Absolutely. periodically to the board. Quarterly. I have a meeting next Monday. So, so, <laughs> so, so this is a good prep so, for that, so, right? <laughs> so do they all look steely-eyed at you, and do, do you have metrics that you're working against? I mean, what are the types of, um, for lack of a better word, metrics that you are particularly focused on as you measure the progress and performance of the Entrepreneurial Center? Yeah, I think it's it's the same thing, interestingly, that probably a lot of our startups are held accountable to from their own board of directors. So yes, we have a board that believes uh, very much in the mission, but because of believing in that mission, there's even, perhaps even a greater uh, focus and intentionality around are we are we tracking to the mission and what we're trying to do, and that is build a huge uh, global footprint of entrepreneurial advancement. Uh, and so the questions that I'm always facing with is, you know, are we making the right decisions on a scale perspective yeah. of regional impact? Are we building the right programs that are really helping our entrepreneurs get unstuck from the business challenges? How do we know that they are? How are we building sustainable businesses if we're in the business of building sustainable founders? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where can we grow and expand the team? Are we keeping the talent? Because we're in a services-based business, not dissimilar to most companies out there. So if I can't keep and retain top talent, I'm always going to be bottlenecked by the ability to move forward. Um, Are we finding strong media support in the impact work that we're doing? Do people care about us at the end of the day? Do they want to know how they can get more entrepreneurs involved in the the work of the center? Um, And are we doing it in a scalable engagement? So are we not spending money to go reach the kinds of entrepreneurs that we want to? So you're responsible for a lot of waterfront. I mean, you personally. Yeah. You cover a lot of a lot of territory. Yeah, well, I have I have an amazing team that is responsible with me on on sort of leading those initiatives. But at the end of it, you know, it is as it should always be. I think for any CEO, making sure that you know you're interpreting and hearing the insights and and the amazing support from the board as leaning into the right strategy for the organization and looking for short term and long term wins mm-hmm. because you got to keep the you got to keep all the balls going right okay. where you're it's building towards that <laughs> impact. Uh, yep. Nothing would make me happier at the end of the day than to know we really do have a global footprint on entrepreneurial advancement. But that is a long tail. It's a marathon just like an entrepreneur is on when they're building a business. So we have to measure the incremental improvements on knowing that we're on the right track and listening to the market insights. Honestly, three years ago, the market of accelerators, incubators, needs of organizations have changed radically. Three years ago, very few corporations had internal innovation centers. These days, there isn't a corporation that I don't talk to who doesn't have their own corporate venture arm or Accelerator or incubator or many 
So that landscape has caused a tremendous change as to who considers themselves entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So the impact of our center now has shifted because our market has changed as well. So the fun thing with entrepreneurship is it's always moving. It's a tremendous field in never which you're always – Exactly. Never a dull <laughs> moment. The hard part is that very same statement too, right? Yeah. Because building legacy in entrepreneurship means that you're moving as quickly as the field is. It's so interesting how you talk about all the change and the trends externally as an accelerators, as the external kind of forces adapt and change. What about internally? What are you noticing of some of the uh, – around some of the kind of companies that come your way? You know, are they, are you seeing certain themes, yeah. um, certain industries or needs are evolving? Yeah, so I'll take the, the, the first part of the question because it's such an interesting one that we've noticed. I think, you know, for better or worse because of the challenges within um, Silicon Valley high-tech companies of recent times, there is a awareness um, an interest even from founders to say, I want to lean into good governance. I want to lean in really? to having an uh, inclusive experience for my board sooner rather than later. Uh, trying to get ahead of culture um, mm -hmm. in their earliest stages as a priority in the same way of raising money. Such an interesting engagement. That's really interesting. Even hearing the shift of like, I don't want to raise just any money. I want to raise the right money and the right money having that parameter approach of who are the investors that are riding alongside of me? How do they view culture? How do they view impact? Um, it's just it's just interesting. I think the other thing is, not surprisingly, again, perhaps because of, of being in San Francisco Bay Area, you know, the rising cost of talent and the challenges of keeping that talent is a war that is ever present for most of our founders that are physically based here. And seeing them approach sort of this global market mm. uh, in a different way because they've had no other choice but to do that from the get-go right. has crazed um, – just an interesting approach to how they're building companies, honestly, in some ways faster than ever before, because now the pressure of like finding a really great engineer isn't limited to the amount of the burn that you can tolerate until the next round of funding comes right. in, but you've got more options on the table from which to go find great talent. Right. Um, I have some early founders that have got a team of 20, and you look at it like, how on earth are you affording that? No with kidding. Raising a, glory. You know, yeah. a, a seed round of a 250K. Yeah. And it's because they've had to have that internal grit of like, I can't afford talent here. Where else am I going to get it? And where's the right talent? So we see companies doing business um, externally to the U.S. Uh, much sooner these days because in part of, of the expense of doing business here. And related to that, so this govern, you know, governance is evolving, culture, what you're mentioning, talent, sourcing talent. What about diversity? And, and to what extent are you seeing companies more mindful about that as they across the board, whether it's, you know, the resources in terms of, you know, skill set, everything. Well, I, I think, you know, one thing that we smile about tremendously with the numbers, and the numbers do speak for themselves, as you kindly pointed out, you know, it, the, the question of, gee, we wish there was talent that was diverse in nature is one that is no longer true. I mean, I think not just the work of the center, but the work of other organizations would point out and say, oh, there's tremendous talent that is female. There's tremendous minority entrepreneurs, non um, not limited by gender and not limited by ethnicity. So being able to now identify that there are um, a wide population of people that have been undersupported today would actually lead me, the entrepreneur in me, to say, well, then that's a market that's ready to be supported and served. And and we're seeing, you know, we've hosted some interesting conversations over the last couple of years with uh, great thought leaders like the National Venture Capital Association and others who are also hearing from their limited partners for the first time now oh. that LPs are saying to their bases of VCs, what are your inclusive numbers? How are you showing diversity across your portfolio? Wow. So I think it was always a multi-sided battle, in my opinion, when you get into inclusive engagements. The pressure, the support had to be present from the investment community, which was going to in turn come from two directions. It was going to come from the entrepreneurs themselves saying, this matters to me that you care about supporting an inclusive base of entrepreneurial talent. And similarly, the limited partners had to say, it matters to us. We want to invest and support in funds that have diversity at the forefront and not because it's a nice to have, but right. because it's the healthy returns, as we've all seen in the data and in the research. I was going to. Yeah. You know, this isn't is. just like a fluffy feel. It isn't good. right. It's good for it's business. It's good for business. <laughs> you know, in the in the course of the classes that I I teach here, I've seen a couple surveys that do confirm that founding teams with 
women actually out financially outperform oh, yeah. there's research teams on where this. there's just you know this race, right? yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm curious i mean you mentioned that 52 percent. this is my my next question there's a question here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said so I, th I think you said 52 percent of the startup companies that have come through the center have been women managed or women led is that 49 percent 49 percent and we're waiting for the 50 50 mark i can't quite I, say but that's yeah, that's way out of sync with what you typically yeah, see yeah, in silicon yeah. valley yeah. so as you again i'm kind of thinking about the curation and the filtering and the evaluation yeah. process as founders and companies approach you nicola do you there is there a social i mean is there a social benefit purpose a social purpose that you're striving toward through the center to, to even out some of the irregularities in the, in the population? We would, we would really love that, Doug. I mean, I, I'll, I will say a couple of things that we've learned, and, and I wish I wish I could be honest and say that, A, from the get-go, we wanted to make sure that it was 50-50 split. Um, I have a 50-50 split team internally, a male-to-female ratio. Is that a and conscious it, split? It was built that way by the talent base. Again, I would say it was talent-driven first, but looking always to pull forward people of uh, an inclusive nature for the yep. benefit of the Got team, okay. for the benefit of the board, for the benefit of our shareholders. Um, but interestingly, I, I want to come back to a couple of things, things that we have now shared with other uh, ecosystem partners that strive to also build an inclusive economy for entrepreneurial bases. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, because we look at a founder acceptance and not a business acceptance, it changed the mentality of who was willing to come in from the start saying, I need help and I need mm -hmm. support. We weren't saying you have to be venture backed at a certain stage because as we know, pattern matching is simply the nature that we would never have reflected a wide yep. base of entrepreneurial right. yep. support. So the application process, if you will, was meant towards eliminating or stripping out as much of that bias as possible. Mm, the second thing that we were very intentional around saying is as the base changed, as the community changed of entrepreneurs, we wanted to make sure that those teaching, those reflecting were of kind to the people in the audience listening. So as we had 49% women base uh, in the audience, we looked for that same up that we're teaching. As we had more minority entrepreneurs in the audience, we were intentional around making sure that we had minority mentors available to them. Mm -hmm. Not just because they were the only mentors that could support, but so that they felt that there was a path forward for them to be able to turn around and support back in the community, right. which is what we were telling them they needed to do anyway. So they had to be able to have that full 360 viewpoint of how do I not only be an entrepreneur that's a minority entrepreneur, but how do I become a venture capitalist, should I so choose, because I've done so well like in my a industry, wide, right? a wide right. open environment exactly yeah. um and and that helped us to know and and then finally again because we're pay it forward approach and you have to turn around and support and nominate other entrepreneurs within the community to get benefit from the center for every one female that we were able to support we suddenly found five recommended people coming into the center that were also That's female cool. or minority yeah. entrepreneurs so it became a circle of support from within those own uh, in, initial engagement of community if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Nicola Corzine, the executive director of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. And we're talking about some of the trends that Nicola has seen, not just you know externally what's going on with accelerators, but internally with the teams that are brought on board and how intentional the center has been in um, cultivating that kind of ecosystem um, for the benefit of everybody in that cohort today, but also in the pay it forward, which I think is really interesting and powerful because there's mirroring, if you will, for each of these teams. Um, you know, th to, to be fair, I will say that we've had to, there have been a couple of places where we really had to pause and go, how can we do more? Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you a classic example. So Milestone Makers, I told you we get about 150 applications for every 12 spots. And uh, originally we were thrilled. We had about 50-50 base. And yet as we were going through that process, we were finding fewer and fewer women or minority entrepreneurs that were making it to the final stages. And we're like, mm -hmm. what's going on? Like, this, this shouldn't be the case. And you start seeing some of that impact of sort of the way in which they were reflecting their businesses being mm. on paper. So now, if it's a first-time founder that we haven't worked with before, we really do encourage them to have and go to one of the open sessions, whether digitally or in person, mm -hmm. so that they can watch out for the language trip-ups that perhaps if you haven't had that exposure, you don't know. So a very classic example, and this has been written about in, in, in a lot of data and research out there, females 
to male ratio. We'll view everything from valuation of the company to uh, the business model to the amount of capital that they might be looking to raise very differently than their male counterparts. They will say, you know, conservative numbers, if we're going to use that all too often phrase that's thrown out, is very different from a female founder as it is to a male founder. Mm, um, we're trying to eliminate some of that language barrier and bias. It's just yeah. the very nature of sort of um, – uh, in, encoded in our DNA in many ways, or yeah. at least been part of the nature versus nurture experience. Yeah. Talk about um, high le- other high-level trend lines, valuations, for example. I mean, oh, there's yeah, been yeah. this chronic concern that we're in a bubble. I mean, is that? Do you, I mean, you see a lot of this. You you occupy a special perch. I mean, you see you, it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. aside from kind of the obvious, maybe not obvious, but aside from global. Yeah. I mean, what? When you're down at more of the operational or the tactical level for companies, are you seeing trends going on? I mean, for example, you see an explosion of incubators and accelerators and, and co-working spaces. And in some respects, you're kind of part of that yeah. phenomenon. You see um, crowdfunding. You see, um, you know, you see um, high-level institutional f- VC firms that are yeah. coming way down market oh, yeah. and, and getting seed funding. So I'm curious – you know, you see a lot of stuff, Nicola. What, what's out there? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I, I, I think a couple of things that have been interesting to watch. I don't know that I necessarily can, can give a crystal ball as to what's next, but um, really looking at horizontal applications versus vertical. So a lot of uh, popular uh, consumer or media might come out and say, you know, it's all about blockchain. But I think what we look at, at, at a uh, technology capability like that is realizing that blockchain has so many different uh, vertical applications, mm-hmm. whether it's right. in health, whether it's in financial. <clears throat> whether it's in consumer-based businesses, and seeing that pattern matching that happens on an underlying technology like blockchain is phenomenal. AI, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, these are often talk about a siloed impact, right? You're like, you're looking for just one or two of the top movers. To us, we see less of that one or two, and instead, we're really looking at the way in which it becomes a huge platform for pulling forward a whole new generation of entrepreneurial leaders. And what that means... Uh, thematically from a financial impact. You know, I certainly I think interesting to, uh, we just hosted a, a quite a large uh, blockchain and crypto program at the center. And that was right at the day with uh, Andreessen Horowitz announcing their yeah. $300 million fund. And they were actually on one of our panels that day. And so, you know, realizing the financial implications often are, uh, a lagging indicator rather than a leading indicator mm. in some regards yeah, yeah. with these deeper technology engagements is just kind of an interesting trend to watch. Yeah. So we only have a few, a few seconds left. Actually, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking, um, where do you see the center in five years? Oh my goodness. I want to, you've got about maybe a minute to talk. Uh, about that. Well, you know, I, I, I certainly think that we continue to deepen our global engagement. I think we are connecting dots to Silicon Valley in really interesting ways, that we are finding uh, ways to pull forward founders on a much wider and deeper level than has ever been done before. I think we're learning from new data sets that we don't even begin to understand today. When you start thinking about what might the implication for entrepreneurial advancement look like if you could connect a whole host of leaders together for a just-in-time support mechanism, that's really interesting. And how might we be able to avoid more of those painful mistakes that we've all had to learn along the way by just connecting people uh, in a more intentional process from the start. Well, that sounds like a modest goal. Well, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you know, kind of global domination. I mean, in short, that's <laughs> for that's good. Really what for for good, good, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is happening. Um, well, we're out of time. That's gone by way too quickly, Nicola. Thank so, you. folks want to learn more about the center. Where should they go? Please visit us at thecenter.nasdaq.org or follow us at Nasdaq Center. Okay, that's great. So, we've been speaking this hour with Nicola Corzine. Nicola, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, so guys. just ahead, we'll be speaking with Andrew Cates, the co-founder of the Wine Raisin Company, in an, an innovative startup that turns varietal wine grapes into a healthy, crunchy snack. So we'll learn more about that. I'm Irina Yen, along with Doug Collum, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.